Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy. And I'm Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, Darley Root here, part two. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brandy. How are you? Doing great. <laughs> great. I uh, just got back from Brownwood. We did. That was a lot of fun. Excellent time. We always have fun when we go down there. We do. Uh, great food, great friends. It was a great time. Um, so, Chris, tonight we're putting out part two. Yes. We have decided on a part three. We have. There's just a lot of information. There is quite a bit. So we, um, there's still a lot to discuss. So part two out now. Part three will be out on Thursday. Yes. So we've got lots of episodes coming up at the end of the week. Yep. Lots of work. Two on Patreon. Uh, we have part three coming out Thursday. And then our episode for this week comes out on Friday, which I will be flying solo for that one. And then we've got Patreon. So yes. lots of episodes coming. Uh, Patreon is a great way to cash in on some bonus episodes and it helps support the show. So it's a win-win. Just go to Patreon and search Texas Wine and True Crime and you will find us there. Great show again, friends in Brownwood. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, honey, let's not waste any time. Let's get right into things if you're ready to go. Yep. Let's delve in. Okay, friends, it's time to sip some wine and let's talk some crime. Darlie Rattier told the police that she had fallen asleep on the couch with her two boys while watching television, only to wake up and later realize that an unknown male was in her home. She stated that as she approached him, the man fled, dropping a knife in a utility room as he ran. After picking up the knife and chasing him away, Rattier said she realized that she and her children had been wounded, and that is when she called 911. Routier told police that the assailant escaped through the garage, but investigators said that the garage contained no blood drops and added that indications were that no one had run through there at all. So she called before her husband like woke up, correct? Um, so there's, there's a few statements out there. There's one that says she realizes they're injured and picks up the phone dial to 911. Um, I seem to think the version of yelling Darren and him flying down the stairs when he hears her scream, he says he claims to hear glass breaking or what he thinks is glass. And then her scream. And then that's when he ran downstairs. So I think it's just simultaneously. I think she was kind of picking up the phone probably as he was running down the stairs. So I would say they were probably happening at the same time. Okay. Um, okay. So we're now we're here in part two. We are going to discuss the trial. Plus, we're going to compare some of the state's evidence with the defense claims about what happened on the evening of June 6, 1996. If you haven't listened to part one, please do so, since a lot of the crime scene info we mentioned is brought up in the trial. There is a lot of moving parts to this trial, Chris, which is why we're going to have a part three. Um, I do want to clarify something I may or may not have said in part one. I can't remember everything I say in the episodes. Okay, so clarify. Okay, so I described one of the boys being stabbed in the back and one from the front, which is correct. Damon was stabbed with entry in the back area and Devin was stabbed through the front. Now, Devin had two front entries that almost went through his entire body front to back. I think I may have said he was only stabbed twice, but they each had a total of four stab wounds. Okay. So each child, I actually... Read the autopsy reports today on the two boys. 
So very similar manners of death, four stabs each, just one from the front and one from the back. And one was still alive when um, ambulance arrived. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, 12 days after Damon and Devin's deaths, the police arrested Darlie for their murders. They had no eyewitnesses to this, Chris, no confessions, and at the time they had no motive. Okay, so they arrest her. Um, within eight months of this crime, Darley will be convicted and sentenced to death by a jury in Kerrville, Texas, where the trial had been moved. So, Chris, let's talk about the trial. Trial is moved out of Rowlett, completely out of Dallas, and to Kerrville. I guess to get away from all the media, possibly. Yes. Uh, I did read something interesting, though, that a lot of trials have been moved to Kerrville and gotten capital convictions. That may be another reason. I need to dive more into that and into that. But uh, so it is moved to Kerrville for whatever reason. So let's talk about the state's uh, case against Darley and the position that her defense took at the trial. So we've got prosecutors. Prosecutors claim Darley killed her boys because the debt was piling up, that she was done being tied down with three kids and a husband that she was constantly fighting with because of the family's ongoing financial issues. It's becoming a burden, okay? Mm. But the money and the boys' insurance policies, prosecutors say this was actually not the main motive. I brought this up in part one. The motive was her own words of being able to be, wanting to be feel free again, to be free again. The suicide note that she wrote in her diary a month before the boys are killed, and they think, you know, maybe, you know, what if, she decided instead of taking her own life, she would then take the lives of her two boys. Or maybe that suicide note was a bunch of Texas-sized baloney and that she actually never intended to kill herself. And a that smoke screen of sorts, I guess. A smoke screen of sorts. And that this could have been very much premeditated. Okay. I can see a little bit of that. The prosecution believes she was spiraling out of control based on her diary entries and that she was so materialistic and selfish, the only way to free herself from this daily burden was getting rid of her kids. Now, remember, she still has one upstairs, a seven-month-old. Yes. So killing those two doesn't make her not a mother anymore, right? Mm -hmm. She still has a, has a baby to raise. The defense said that this motive is absolutely ridiculous. If Darley wanted money, then why not kill Darren? Darren has an $800,000 life insurance policy on himself, and Darley would be able to recoup on that money if something was to happen to him, mm -hmm. versus the $10,000 she had on the kids. So they can't go for this motive. I mean, clearly, right? Yes. What is, what is $20,000 going to do? Yeah, I didn't think the kids would have very large insurance policies. None none typically do. Yeah, the other argument besides the life insurance money, the other argument they made was the sock being found outside of the home and none of Darlie's blood on that sock. Now, they also said if Darlie was going to kill her kids, why not kill all of them? She would still have to be a mother to, like I mentioned, the seven-month-old. Yes. But let's talk about that sock for a second. So they're saying that because her blood wasn't on the sock, the defense is saying there's no way she could have planted it. 
Okay. There's no way she would have. And here's why the boy that was still alive, that was alive when paramedics arrived, there was a test. Somebody, uh, one of the medical examiners testified the boy would have only had an eight minute window to live after the injuries. Now you're a medical professional. I don't know how accurate those are. I feel like, I feel like that could all depend on how old you are. If you have any pre-existing conditions, are you on blood thinners? Do you bleed easily? I think that time frame can be a little sketch, in my opinion, when it comes to figuring out how long someone can survive after an injury. I mean, what do you think about that? I don't know that they're the experts, so. But then they te- one then someone testified that it was just a guess. Right, it's an estimate. They don't really know how well, of long. Of course, it's an estimate. I mean, they don't have a specific so time. Right, so it's eight minutes. So it's they're just saying a professional opinion. They're saying Dardley could have not gone and planted this. There's no no blood. Right, they're basically def- the defense is coming from a point if she would have cut herself before taking the sock out. Yes. Okay, but let's say that she let's say she does because that's kind of where they're saying there's no drops of her blood on the way out or the way in there's no no blood drops are really found of hers at all outside right we know that so if if she was going to plant the sock she would have 8 minutes to plant the sock come back in cut herself try to clean up clean up the sink pick up put the knife up and then she would have had to seen her boy still alive and then finish him off so the defense is saying this time frame doesn't fit. There's no way. But then it goes back to my theory, and we'll talk about that, which I believe she did not cut herself before planting the sock. And I, I, I found it very interesting. The sock was found next to a gutter and a trash can. And we're talking about the middle of the night, and it's dark. Maybe that person was a bad shot. Maybe that person had every intention of throwing that down the gutter. And it missed. It's possible. Okay. So um, so we've got the defense saying completely ludicrous. It wasn't about money. Darren was worth a whole lot more. Um, and then, you know, if Darlie was going to kill all of her kids, why didn't she just kill all of them? She only killed two of them. So at the trial, Darlie was represented by attorney Douglas Mulder. And the prosecution was led by attorney Greg Davis. So there were some key players at this trial that took the stand to testify, including Darlie herself. So let's talk about a few of those people. Now, friends, we are doing a part three because there are we're not going to be able to get into everyone's testimony, although it is all public record. You can go and read any transcript you want in this trial. There's just so much information publicly out there um, in this case. So among those who investigated the scene inside of the Routier home and ended up testifying for the prosecution, Chris, his name is James Cron. James Cron is a retired, he retired from the Dallas Sheriff's Department, but he was contacted by the Rowlett Police Department to assist in basically analyzing the Routier home. So he arrives on the scene at 5.45 a.m. So they call him very quickly. Uh, Come to find out, just reading his testimony, he had worked with the Rowlett Police Department on several cases. He had taught the police officers, classes. I mean, he was very involved with the Rowlett Police Department. 
Um, Chris, he attended numerous schools to learn more and more about dealing with physical evidence and latent prints. So he's being questioned on the stand, and they're trying to basically show that he's qualified to make the decision he did make within the first 20, 30 minutes being in the routine home. Mm -hmm. So some of those places are the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, Burlington County College, Toronto. I mean, he was in Canada teaching and learning. Um, He's taught at multiple places, multiple universities. He's been given over 150 awards for all of the work he's done. So Cron testified that he walked through the home and conducted a visual inspection of the evidence. It took him 20 to 30 minutes, and he made the comment, that looks to me like there was no intruder here. Mm-hmm. So now I did spend, like I said, I spent a lot of time reading the trial transcripts over the last few days, um, even the last week. In this case, and let me tell you what Cron testifies to, Chris. So he's explaining to the court that he was going from room to room to observe anything unusual. He's not taking notes. He's not writing reports. He's not doing anything but looking around. And he says he does this on purpose. He This is part of the process, right? Everything, they have a process. They walk through the rooms. He's looking at blood evidence. He's looking at footprints. He's looking at, you know, anything that looks out of place. Mm-hmm. So he does this to most of the rooms um, downstairs. So... What did he find? Well, he finds most of the blood, right, is in the family room where where the crime takes place. Um, He also testifies that the blood splatter that was found um, in most of the home was basically someone that would have to be either chest and down. So nothing standing up. Nothing, no attack of, of standing up. Somebody was either lower to the ground based on the blood splatter. Um, here's what he didn't find. He didn't find any blood on the um, the vase that was sitting on the coffee table where the boys were asleep. Okay? So the table glass, it was like slanted a bit, and, and it looked like it had slipped, but there was no fingerprints that they could find except the families. There was no blood on any of the tips of the flowers, any of the vase. It was like it had either been moved and put back or just completely undisturbed. Now, you have two boys sleeping on the floor. So they don't they expect to see something because how close it is? Yeah, how close it was to them. Um, the fact that it didn't break, they asked him, did you see any chips in it? Would there be any reason for you to think that had been broken and put back together? Were the flowers in, in disarray? And he, and he says no to all of this. Um, and basically what he comes to the conclusion, what, the reason he said he made that decision so quickly is because he looked at the window. He looked at the cut screen. He looked at the, at the blood evidence. He looked at where this person, you know, he talks about the windowsill, how you would have moved. He said the dirt of the, the dust was so thick there would have been no way someone wouldn't have just somehow disturbed it or hit it. So there were just these details that were popping out at him. And he did not think an intruder had come into that home. And now it's time for a wine recess. Chris, I want to tell our listeners about my friend Tammy and her podcast, Grits with a Side of Murder. 
Grits with a Side of Murder is a true crime podcast hosted by Tammy and her variety of co-hosts. Grits features a different guest each week, and they have no idea what criminal truth Tammy will reveal. Tammy and her co-host sip on adult beverages while she tells a true crime story. Grits with a Side of Murder consists of light banter about criminals that, well, aren't the brightest candle on the cake, while still making a conscious effort to be respectful of victims and their families. When you tune in, you might hear Tommy, who is a retired Atlanta homicide detective, or maybe you'll hear Jordan, Colin, or Michelle. You never know who or what you're going to get. You can hear new episodes each and every week. You will be sucked in by the cool intro music and her sweet Southern voice. Please check out our friends at Grits with the Side of Murder wherever you listen to your podcast. Contains adult content and explicit material. Chris, there were forensic blood spatter experts that testified, including the testimony of Tom Bevel. So Tom Bevel, he does forensic analysis. He has testified in many, many trials, and he talks about blood spatters. So he was asked to come and give his expert opinion on the blood spatter that was found in the route to your home. So the pattern of blood drops in the kitchen seemed to come from someone who had been standing still, not running after a perpetrator as Darlie Routier had claimed happened. Like cleaning her hands at the sink or something of that nature? Or just, yep, um, just that was one thing was the sink, right? So we know that there was very few drops of blood found in the sink, but underneath the sink where you would stand, there were blood droplets on top of blood droplets on top of blood droplets, and all of that blood was Darlie's. So we know, or they know, that she was at least staying stationary at some point in front of the sink, okay? Um, next, the blood splatter on the back shoulder of her nightshirt. So let's talk about that. This is consistent with the idea of, so basically you're stabbing down, right? And then you come up with the knife and the blood that is on the tip of the knife is going to come off traject off of the knife, right? So she's pushing down and then pulling up over her head because those blood droplets are found on the back of her shirt. So they said there is no way any of the boy's blood could have got back there unless she was, go it, it shows going down, going back, and then going down again. Okay. Which is very, I mean, this is some. It's very damning. Yeah, I mean it's on the back it's on the back of her shoulder and on the back of the nightshirt. Now, let's also talk about um let's also try to talk about what was on her shirt and that was the different puncture wounds. So she had like these puncture wounds on all different parts of her shirt, but she had not been stabbed in any of those places. She had like cuts in the shirt. So prosecutors say she did this to her own clothes. She ripped them to make it look like there was some sort of struggle. Yeah, that's kind of what it's pointing to. But yeah, she never says she struggled with anyone, right? Mm -hmm. According to her first story, I'm talking about first story, first statements, because we're actually going to talk about 
five or six different scenarios she has given. People say her story has been the same since day one. Has she always said she she didn't do it? She didn't kill her kids? Yes, that has remained the same. She has never buckled and said, I actually did it. But what? But she has not given the same story every time. In fact, we're going to find out because when Darren takes the stand, they are going to rip him apart about some of the things that he said to people and the only way he would have got that information was from his wife. Okay, other testimony came from the police officers that were on the scene and the other officers that questioned Darley after the murder. So, Chris, we talked about this in part one, the 911 call, okay? Um, I'm thinking about, like, making an episode about the 911 call just, like, randomly whenever I feel like touching back on Darley Routier. And really dissecting that 911 call um, because it was just so hard to understand. Because mm-hmm. there are, there's just so much in that call. I think that if you listen over and over, you start to catch on like some of the things that she's saying. So here, here's, here's one thing we're going to talk about. Um, this is about when she tells the 911 operator sh- that the perpetrator drops the knife and she goes and picks it up. Right now, it's not uncommon to say things like that to 911. It's not. If you think you have disrupted a crime scene, if you think you've come onto a crime scene, if you've tried CPR on someone who was dying and you had no idea who they were, then that is what you tell 911. You tell 911 what is going on at the scene. Mm-hmm. Okay? So they can they can make note of these things and they can, you know, there's evidence of you of you talking about it. But it doesn't stop there. Her comments about this went on for days after about her touching the knife after the murders. Chris, she even says this to a nurse at Baylor Hospital when she's being treated for her wounds. This nurse testified he did not ask Darley any questions at all. He asked her nothing. And at one point in time, this is exactly what he says on the stand, quote, at one point in time, she stated aloud that she picked up the knife after the attacker dropped it. And she was concerned that maybe her fingerprints had obscured the attacker's fingerprints. Yes, she's awfully concerned about those fingerprints. This is to a nurse at Baylor, Mm -hmm. not asking any questions. She is telling also other police officers, other people without any questions being asked of her about picking up the knife. She's just openly offering up this information. I mean, that is what you're concerned about. You just lost your two children. Like that is what you keep saying over and over. Now, I want to talk about the contradicting statements Darren made in his testimony. So this, sit back, friends. <laughs> this is, uh, we're going to be talking about Darren's testimony here for a bit. Okay, so we're going to talk about what he says on the stand, what he tells different people after the murder, and then what he actually said in his statement. So Chris, in part one, I mentioned that Darren testified to seeing Darlie at the sink. He was seeing... You know, he says she was seen taking towels from the kitchen, handing them to Darren and using them on the boys. He tells the CPS worker, she's going to come into play, Jamie Johnson, that Darley, okay, this is right after the murder. CPS and worker Jamie Johnson, I'm going to get back into another conversation he has with her. But he, um, but he told Jamie Johnson 
that Darley was often the background on the phone with 911 when he was trying to resuscitate his boys. Mm-hmm. But he testified that Darley was right next to him when he was giving aid to his boys. Chris, here's the problem. None of this information, none of it, none of it I'm about to talk about was in his original statement. And to me, it's very clear why he's bringing this up. Well, to protect her, I would assume. Right. So he talks about, he tells the, he tells the CPS worker, Darley, you know, Darley was in the background on 911. And... He talks about, um, because if he was, if she, the towels, right? Getting the towels for him. Um, then they ask him, are you sure Darlie had a towel on her neck? And then he testified, you know, I think so. And they go, well, you think so? And they goes, yes, she did. It was a green washcloth. Well, when he was asked in his original statement about that, he, he didn't know if Darlie had a rag on her neck. So it's these different things he's saying to make it like she was in his visual, right? Mm-hmm. Like she, he could see what she was doing and this is what she's doing. Greg Davis goes after some of the different stories that were told by Darren Routier to others. So Chris, at one point, Darren confesses to telling different accounts about what happened. So he is talking to people after the murder telling them different stories. So prosecution chalks this up to Darley's different accounts to Darren about what happened that night, even though he testified under oath that her story has never changed. One thing to note is there was a barking dog and a ferocious cat in the house that night. Ferocious cat. Now listen to this. That cat was in a cage next to where Darley was sleeping on the couch. Chris, Darren testified that this cat didn't like strangers and would hiss and even attack people. So they would lock him up. Or her. Don't know. But if only cats could talk, because we now know that cat was the only thing that saw what happened. The cat was in the cage. Now, what I was trying to find that I couldn't find was if the cat is normally in the cage at night. Or if they let it roam free. Well, there must be a reason why it was in the cage at that. Oh, well, I would think if she was about to attack her boys, then she would put the cat up. But I'm curious if the cat was put up at night. Okay, Darren left out that Darlie had handed him a wet washcloth for the boys, Chris, instead of a dry one to stop the bleeding. He didn't mention this in his first statement. Mm -hmm. But then it comes out that she had wet the rag to hand to them. Now, why is a medical professional? Is that a problem? It won't soak up blood, right? Well, not as well. Yeah, like typically you would give a dry towel for, I would. to stop a wound. <laughs> yes, we would. So they thought that was strange that he left that out. She wets the towel and and gives it to him. There were um, there were p- police officers that testified that they wanted Darley Routier to give CPR to her son, that she was just so distraught and ignoring um, their requests. So there was there there were a few testify pe- few people testified to having the police you know knowing the police officer was asking her of this when they arrived. Um, now Darley was not sitting or standing next to him while he was trying to save his boys, so she is off in the background as originally stated on the phone with nine one one and whatever else she is doing. 
Because, Chris, this explains why on this six-minute 911 call, we don't really hear Darren. Yeah, we never hear him. We don't ever hear him. And if he is really next to her and she's next to him and she's on the phone with 911 and and she's assisting him, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear, you don't, you hear her yelling out at him. She's yelling things out at him. We need to find out who did this. We need to find out who did this. But you don't really, you hear very small bits of his voice. But you don't ever hear him say really any clear words, except once or twice. So big red flag um, for me is is this right here. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris, I want to discuss another story Darren told to Jamie Johnson, that CPS employee that I mentioned that interviewed Darren Routier shortly after the murder, and also what he told a woman named Corinne Wells. So let's talk about Jamie Johnson first. So before they get into the Jamie Johnson conversation, they're basically asking Darren Routier on the stand, you know, how many story, how many times have you been and Darley talked about this. How many times have you discussed this? Well, my gosh, we probably, you know, we probably talked about this hundreds of times. Okay, hundreds of times. And how many times has her story changed? It's never changed. It's always the same. She's she's never deviated, you know, from, from her story. And she, he says, okay, well, you know, that that's interesting because do you remember what you told Jamie Johnson concerning the the version that your wife had given you of the attack? And he says, "Do I remember?" No. And then Greg Davis says, "Do you remember saying to her that you told Jamie Johnson that Darley told you that she woke up because there was a weight on her legs and the intruder supposedly was sitting on her legs?" Do you remember telling Jamie Johnson that this is the version that your wife gave to you about this attack? And he says, we didn't know if that was really true or not. We didn't know if that was a dream. And the prosecutor says, well, Jamie Johnson, when you discussed this incident with her, this that is the version that you gave her, wasn't it? And then he says, yes, sir. So he's saying when you talk to her, you didn't give her the correct version of of what your wife had told you. And he says, we didn't know. I mean, I wasn't there when it happened. So I don't know what exactly happened. I just know what she told me. And what she told me was that she woke up with Damon tugging on her. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he is just all over the place. He's he's all he knows is her account. Right. So, I mean, that's probably why he's, if she's telling a bunch of different accounts, then. I feel like he's like piecing it together, you yeah. know, like piecemealing it. That's what I would think. And just trying to make sense of it. I mean, he just lost his kids. She's the only one there. I mean, he clear, you can hear this frustration in his voice. You know, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. Um. So, but he never told Jamie Johnson about about Damon tugging on her though. Like he never he never said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did say, but he did talk about somebody sitting on Dartley and that that's what woke her up. All right. So then they ask him, do you remember describing to Jamie Johnson how the attacker would have cut Dartley's neck and how he would have got past her breasts 
in order to get at her neck. Do you remember telling Jamie Johnson that? And he says, no, sir. And then they said, do you remember telling Jamie Johnson that your wife would have been face to face with this attacker? And he says, no, sir. And he goes, Mr. Routier, again, going back to Kareen Wells. Okay, so let's talk about Kareen Wells. She is the lady that lives at their old house. So they had another house on a different street. And he went and just had a conversation with her about five months after the murders. And so he says, yes, I do remember, but I didn't know her name. He said he ended up having like this long, great conversation with her. And then all of a sudden he doesn't know who she is. Okay. And the guy's like, yeah, right. Okay. So do you remember when you went over to talk to her in December and you went into your wife's version of the attack with Kareen Wells? And he goes, yep, I remember we had a good talk. Um, But and then the lawyer's like, great. Glad you had a great talk. But you did tell her the account, your wife's account about what happened. And he says it clearly, he kind of ignores it. And he said, did you tell Kareen Wells what your wife had related to you about the attack? He says, no. And then the prosecutor says, so you did not tell Kareen Wells that the man was on top of her and was intending to rape her when she woke up. You didn't tell Kareen Wells that. And his answer was, that would be my assumption. From what your wife had told you, no, my assumption of everything that I know, I know everything about this case. He goes, well, then let me just ask you, did you tell Kareen Wells that the man was on top of your wife and was intending to rape her? Did you say that to Kareen Wells? And he says, I said that could very well be. So what do we have here? We have somebody that's repeating his stories that his wife's telling him. Because he has no idea. Well, of course, he wasn't present when all this took place. So, I mean, that's kind of what it seems to me. I mean, I feel like keep his mouth shut, but I mean, in reality, I mean, I think he's just, you know, that may be part of his healing process. He's talking about it, chatting about it. Who knows? What, just testifying and getting it out? Or what do you mean? Oh, you're talking about to the individual people. Yeah. I feel like, you know, it's one of those. Because he doesn't really know what happened. So all he knows right. is a version that he's heard. Do you think it's a way to protect her by telling these stories? Because clearly it's it's it hurts her. It believe, hurt her. Who wants to believe their wife did this? Right. So I don't know if it's intentionally protecting her, but I mean, you know, he clearly defended her. So Yeah, he did. He spent almost his life savings on her case and then he ends up they end up divorcing in 2011 but that was that wasn't because he wanted to he said he just knew it was time to move on and what is is and that you know it was his way to break away um so you can see that Darren says things in his original statement they're not matching what he's telling people months later and this is one of the things that I think hurt Darley the most She gave several different accounts of how she woke up and then what happened. So, Chris, here are a few. In one account, she says she fought the actual intruder. Um, In another account, she woke up by Damon touching her shoulder and and calling out for mom. In another account, she heard the sound of glass breaking, so she woke up. Now, in her very first account, she woke and there was a man standing at the edge of the couch walking away from her toward the kitchen. Um, so you see there's, 
And then in one account, she actually didn't remember anything, I think. She actually, yeah, she had no memory of the actual altercation. So we're getting different stories. So we are getting different stories. So I, people say, well, she's maintained her innocence. Yes, she has. She has said, I, I've maintained my innocence. But this is not, this is, there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with giving six different accounts. I mean, I can guarantee you if this happened to me and I woke up, I would remember, I would remember something. And it wouldn't be any, and it wouldn't deviate from what I remembered before. And, and to, and to, you know, is it, is it psychological? Then you had people testify that she could be under, you know, some, you know, she already was dealing with some postpartum baby blues and now she's lost two kids and this is making, you know, her psychological well-being even worse. So maybe she isn't remembering correctly and maybe she's seeing things or dreaming. I don't know. Now, but Chris, I mentioned to you earlier that after looking at the picture of her injuries as she's facing the camera, I posted this picture on our social media, um, and I'm not creating any breaking news or anything, and I know that medical examiners noticed this. This is not something, um, but I, but just from a, a person who is not a medical expert, someone who likes to read and research true crime, here's what I did notice. So we know Darlie is right-handed. So that tells me we're just going to go with the state's theory that she did this to herself, that she is where she's supposed to be. So if these injuries are self-inflicted, let's talk about that. I'm right-handed, okay? I even did this today on myself just to see how I didn't actually cut myself, but I was just trying to see if, since I am right-handed, how, how I would go about this. So if you notice in that picture, Chris, that I showed you, she's got a cut of about, what, maybe an inch and a half to, you know, about about an inch and a half, mm-hmm. l- like slice from the armpit up towards the neck. Okay? We can agree on that, right? There's that picture. And then there's this gap space between the next wound, which is the one that was millimeters away from her carotid, ar- carotid artery, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So why the gap? Why do we have two incisions? This isn't a clean cut. This is a cut and then a stop and then a cut. So if if she did this to herself and she takes the right hand and she's trying to start from left to right as a right-handed person would, I think she goes all the way over because I'm even reaching with my arm. You know where it stops if I have something in my hand? It stops she, right here. She could have used her left hand and went down. No, it went up. Like this? Nobody's going to cut themselves no, like this. it's like from the neck down. So she could use her left hand and sliced down. Yeah, but I and find it very rare for baby. right-handed people. Yeah, and that was another thing. She didn't puncture it. Right. She went up above and went. But if I'm just standing here and I put my arm to my from my right arm to my left shoulder, it touches right where that cut is on her at that crease of the armpit. OK, so if somebody's coming like this. Chris, I told you, I think she stopped. I think it we can, hurt. We can agree. It looks sketchy. <laughs> I think she pulls it up. I think she either was trying to see how deep she was going to have to go. 
I don't know if she got, if she's like, whoa, that hurts. I'm stopping. And then wait, whoa, I can't stop. I've just committed. I've just committed murder. I have to make this look like something. She then goes back to finish. But it's she too leaves. high up on her neck on the right side to use your right hand. I'm telling you, it's not. It goes like almost up to her shoulder on her neck. If you're using your left hand to come down. Yeah, you would start up high on this side. Okay, then why not have a clean cut all the way through? Because maybe her elbow hit her big old boob and it kicked it off and it came back down. I'm going to have to pull up the medical report for part three and look into this. I want to know if, if anybody talked about this injury when it came to... And why they why they said self-inflicted. I, I mean, I know why they said self-inflicted, but I want to be very clear before I talk about this. Okay, but I am saying that whether it's the boob. Okay, so if it's the left hand, Chris, that she used, I'm going to agree. It's the boob. It skidded off. It hit the rest of the armpit going down. If, but I do think I can easily make that cut with my right hand. Easily. I know, but not up on your neck with your right hand. Articulate your wrist right now. You're not even holding the knife right how you would cut your neck. You have to have it pointed up, up like this. Just think about that. I mean, I don't know. But let's talk Regardless about this. Regardless of what hand she used, it looks right. like it was. But think about, but if it's an intruder theory, right? That intruder would have had to cut twice. Mm-hmm. They would have had to cut once and then go in and do the other cut. Now, they just killed two boys with four stab wounds each. Why are they just going to go and do that to her? Why not just stab her? That's why nobody believes the intruder theory. They're they're stabbed exactly the same way, except one in the front and one at the back, four each. But she has a completely different outcome and completely different style of killing. Okay, so we're gonna I'm gonna look more into that, and we're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about in part three. But I believe there was some hesitancy on her part, which is why we see that gap in between the two wounds. And if we're thinking it's a perpetrator, why not kill her the same way? Why come in differently? And why I don't think they would stop. They would have to come in with two slices. Okay, Chris, we are going into a part three, like we mentioned, for Thursday, because we know Darlie takes the stand in her own defense. This was not what her attorneys had advised her to do. They advised her to not take the stand. But Chris, we have a lot more to discuss. So friends, we will see you in part three. See you in part three. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.